Hello everybody and welcome to the greatest games on the Blizzard. My name is Marcus Speller, with me is Jonathan Wilson and with us today it's Nick Barnes, commentator for Sunderland at BBC Radio Newcastle. Nick, pleasure to have you on the pod. Thank you very much, looking forward to it, it's good. Today we go back to November 2010 for a Premier League match at Stamford Bridge that ended Chelsea 0, Sunderland 3. Nick, why have you chosen this game? Uh, a number of reasons, really. I mean, at the time, um, it was uh, Steve Bruce in charge. They'd had a, a a pretty good start to the season. I mean, they weren't pulling up trees. They'd drawn quite a few games earlier in the season. And, and I'm sure when we went to Stamford Bridge that afternoon, we weren't expecting anything uh, at all, apart from uh, a, a zero on the Sunderland column and three or four in the Chelsea column. Um <laughs> Chelsea were the champions. Carlo Ancelotti was the manager. And I remember at the time as well that um, Sunderland didn't sell out their allocation um, for Stamford Bridge. You know, a number of reasons of that. The primary one was the cost of tickets at Chelsea was fairly exorbitant and it, and it sort of finally hit fans who weren't prepared to sort of pay. And also because of the historical record, Sunderland in London, they weren't winning or they hadn't won many games over the years in London. So that conspired for Sunderland not to sell out their end at Stamford Bridge. Of course, the whole thing was turned on its head at the end of the game because Sunderland had run out 3-0 winners. Um, it was a remarkable afternoon against a side that had only lost three games at home in 125 previous Premier League matches. Um, it, it was some achievement. And, and, and whilst Chelsea weren't at full strength. They had several players out, Frank Lampard, John Terry, Michael Essien, for one reason or another, injury and suspension. They were still a strong 11. And if you look at their starting lineup, I'm, you know, looking at it now and it still fears you with, with dread. And, you know, before kickoff, you'd have looked at that and felt Anelka and Drogba up front for starters. You know, what, what's the chances of getting anything from a game like this? But to, to win 3-0 and win it comfortably 3-0, um, Fabio Capello, who was then the England manager, was watching as well. Um, it was it was just astounding. I mean, it, and, it, and I think even to this day, I still remember it as when I'm asked, "What are your favourite Sunderland matches?" It's it's up there because yes, Sunderland have been to a League Cup final and there was the League Cup semi final at Old Trafford, um, and they've had other big games at the Stadium of Light over the years, but this one just really stood out in what was. Ultimately, actually a very good season. I mean, Steve Bruce managed to conspire a 10th place finish. I mean, largely because of results on the final day of the season saw them jump three places. But, you know, overall, for much of that season, certainly the first half of the season, they were they were sixth, seventh in the table. They weren't that far behind the top four. So Steve Bruce actually probably had, you know, the, the, the best, he'd assembled the best squad he was ever going to assemble at Sunderland because, of course, it was, it was torn apart not long after. Um, and, and so this game was sort of a, a moment in time, if you like, because Sunderland really have never, they've never reached those heights since, you know, the years following that year in the, in the Premier League were fairly wretched. They were all, yes, they were all the last gasp, sort of um, harem, scarem finishes and, and they make their own stories in their own right. And there were some incredible results, if you like, in and amongst all of those, not to mention the derbies and, and you know, um, Sam Allardyce, Gus Poyet, Palo de Cana, they all had their moments. But Steve Bruce's 3-0 win at Chelsea was like the first of those sort of matches that signalled something special. 
And I and it was interesting because only two weeks previous to the Chelsea win, they'd been thrashed 5-1 at St James's Park. So which made it all, it all the more remarkable that they'd managed to somehow go from that absolutely torrid and wretched afternoon <laughs> to winning 3-0 at the Premier League champions. Yeah, remarkable is the word when we think about this result, Jonathan, as um, as has been described there. Uh, I mean, looking back on it from, from, from your point of view as a Sunderland fan, amazing result and a very good squad of players. Yeah, I mean, Darren Bent wasn't available for this game, but Bent was, you know, scored hundreds of goals and they had Danny Welbeck and Asamo Jang. And so the three often played together with Welbeck playing out on the left. But I mean, this game was, was Welbeck and Jan together. But to have three players of that stature together, <laughs> yeah, with you know Catamel and a young Jordan Henderson at the back of midfield behind them, with Buda van Zenden, yeah, it was a really good squad. And the the problem was under Steve Bruce, Solomon never consistent. And I sort of feel this with all of Steve Bruce's teams that they they're up and down all the time, and it's very hard to work out any any pattern. Um, so I, I think yeah, the, the I mean. The other factor of why Sunderland didn't sell out the allocation was the previous season they'd gone to Stamford Bridge and they lost 7-2. And I remember that as being one of the grimmest days of the past sort of 20 years as a Sunderland fan. Um, Liam Miller got a stupid sending off. It was Liam Miller was sent off, was it? I, I think, think it yeah, was. That, yeah, yeah. And it's one of those red cards. It's like, you know, clearly that would not be a red card if we were a big team. They're just sort of rubbing in with a little <laughs> team by sending, <laughs> sending him off for that. And just looked utterly hapless. Um, and then, and then, yeah, just two weeks before this, that, that derby, I mean, I'd been in, I was in Argentina at the time and I was out in General de Rodriguez about an hour outside Buenos Aires and realized the house I was in didn't have the right channel to, to watch the derby. So I I'd, um, got my then girlfriend's mother to drive me back into Buenos Aires so I could watch that game. You got there just before kickoff, this great race. And so they watched them put in this absolutely pitiful display. And the, the notion that that team two weeks later could be going to Stamford Bridge and playing the champions off the park. I mean, Chelsea hadn't conceded a goal since the previous season. This game was in middle of November. They hadn't conceded a goal at home in, in the league since March, 900 and something minutes. Um, and the fact that we, <laughs> well, I mean, we'll talk about it later, but the way that goal was scored and who it was scored by were so implausible. But there was that sort of sense at the end that there's, well, hang on, if we can go to Stamford Bridge and win 3-0 and play like that, we could do anything. Like, anything's possible this season. And suddenly all the old parameters you thought you knew didn't really seem to apply anymore. Mm. And it was, as you mentioned earlier, Nick, it seemed to be a moment in time. that Because that season, Steve Bruce was given a contract extension by Niall Quinn, who proclaimed about Bruce. In only 18 months, he's reshaped our squad beyond recognition, bringing in some fantastically talented players. He embodies the ethos of teamwork and the importance of camaraderie and creating a wonderful spirit of togetherness amongst the players and staff. And I think that was February, so that's a few months on from from this result. And of course, about a year on from this win at Stafford Bridge, he, he was sacked. But he had built something at Sunderland. I mean, th- those words from Niall Quinn would certainly suggest that he had. Well, he he was. He was building something. I mean, the the, the it was the January of that following year that was sort of undermined, where the rug was pulled out from underneath his feet in a way, because they sold Darren Bent. Asamoah Jan decided to to move on as well, uh, and Welbeck was always over, only ever on on loan. Um, you, you know, he he had a, Steve had a very good relationship with Alex Ferguson at Man United. He also had a very good relationship with Arsene Wenger at Arsenal, and and through those contacts, it's where he was able to 
bring in the likes of Nicholas Bentner, for instance, and, and Danny Welbeck, and, and he attracted some good players to to Sunderland. But you could see in the way that he was playing his football, the results they were starting to achieve, that uh, and obviously finishing tenth, that he he had been building something, and I think he felt. Um, undermined, if you like, by the, the 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 issues off the pitch regarding losing the players that he would you know felt were fundamental to sort of building on what he'd achieved. Um, ironically, I mean Ellis Short, who sacked him, seen spoken to Ellis Short not that long ago. Funnily enough, Gary Bennett, my summariser, and I met him at King's Cross. He was travelling back up to Sunderland, and he said then a uh, brief conversation he had the biggest mistake he made as the owner was sacking Steve Bruce. He said he was the best manager I had and maybe I was premature in sacking him when I did. Which is, yeah, I, I, I accept that and I can see looking back with hindsight why he would say that. But I think the other thing to remember at that time he was sacked, he, 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 the, the crowd had turned, the fans had turned on Steve um, probably to a point where there was no going back and to watch Steve stand on the touchline against Wigan Athletic, um, losing a game game with an absolutely sort of a howler from Wes Brown and then the crowd turning and seeing a man standing so isolated on the side of the pitch at the Stadium of Light being effectively handed out was quite difficult to take. And I think when you get a situation with the fans and it's turned like that, there's, there's, there's very little anybody can do. There, there wasn't really a way back for Steve Bruce then. And at, and at the time, it was always said when Steve was appointed, they would always use the stick to beat him with the fact that he was a Newcastle fan. He was born in Newcastle or Corbridge. And he, he certainly that, that did come back to, to haunt him. So but I mean, to be it, fair, yeah. Nick, that, that, that only came back right at the end, didn't it? And, and it did. Yeah, it did. But I think it was always, we always said it, it would one day come back. Yeah, sure but enough, it, it, it sort of... It, it did. It, it, it so that was the stick, but the the sort of stick was handed over by the fact they only won two of the first fourteen games yeah. that season. Yeah, yeah. So it was, I, and I, but yeah, I think you know this hindsight issue. I mean, looking back, in, do, is November the right time to sack a manager? Oh, it's a difficult one, isn't it? Because as you say, they won two out of fourteen. Would they have pulled themselves out of that rut with Steve perhaps feeling slightly undermined by what had happened previously? It's it's we could argue it all day long, couldn't we? But um, you know, I mean, yeah. I mean, Martin Neal came in. Since, yeah, yeah. Neal comes in, and they have that. Um, yeah, they, they two very late goals to, to come from behind to beat Blackburn, and then Blackburn. A, an amazing start, um, which sort of meant some of them were pretty much guaranteed safety within a couple of months of Martin O'Neill taking over. I, I don't know. I, I I struggled to. I think it would have been a much much tougher fight to set up that season if if Bruce had stayed. Because the thing, I, and I don't know if you have any sort of theories as to why this should be, but. Yeah, I know we talk now about Lee Johnson being a, a sort of streaky manager, but Bruce was a really streaky manager as well. So there'd been that um, that 108-day run without a win uh, the, the the previous season. There was only ended with the four the four goals against Bolton when when Bent got the hat trick in in the March, and then, yeah, they hadn't they hadn't won a game through December, January, February. So I don't know why Steve Bruce's team should 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 get on those runs. And I mean, I guess the the the, the that also, it maybe is a counter-argument to what I've just said, that they did get out of that rut and they did mm. get themselves to the sixth by Christmas this season. I, 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 they, I mean, one accusation is often level at Steve Bruce is he starts well and then hits the buffers. And, and you know, when you look at his record at the clubs he's been at, 
he does seem to have a good sort of um, opening season, two seasons, then the third season or you know late second season. It, it it he does seem to hit a wall sometimes. And has he ever been given the opportunity to extend his time, if you like, before he's been sacked, or is he a very competent championship manager? but not a Premier League manager. There's all that whole debate about Steve Bruce. You know, what he achieved with Hull City was, you know, he, he, you know he'll look back on that and with, with fondness because he went to an FA Cup final. Um, you know, I think he's regarded, you know, well on, on, you know, on Humberside. But, you know, Villa fans it turned on him. Sunderland fans ultimately turned on him after he'd hit the wall uh, in the Premier League. And it's uh, it's... It's a difficult one because if, because I, I suppose the whole conversations around Steve Bruce now because of what's happening at Newcastle, which in a way sort of magnifies everything that happened eleven years ago. Yeah, I mean, I think the point you make that that you know, I mean, the, the phrase you used, and I think it's exactly right, was the rug was pulled out from under him this season. That Darren Bent is sold. Jan then decides that or he's been you know, he's been given a huge offer from the Middle East and. Mm. He sort of feels he has to take that to to support his family or or, or whatever. Um. And and not and which would be bad enough to lose two of your three forwards and the one you've got left is the one who's on loan, but also they went to Blackpool and won two one the first game without Bent, and then suddenly have a run where they have to play the previous season's top seven plus Stoke away, which is tough enough anyway. I mean, took one point the guy draw down against Arsenal from that run, and suddenly you've gone from being sixth and thinking maybe we can get into Europe mm. in the space of six weeks to being, hang on, might we get relegated here? Yeah, and looking at the other dugout, you know, in terms of this game, of course, Chelsea had uh, in the build-up to this match um, their own problems in the coaching staff. In, in that, Ray Wilkins was dismissed quite in a sort of, if I remember correctly, it was quite an unsavoury manner. Um, Nick, it left a bit of a sour taste in in people's mouths. This one, I don't think, as I understand it, Ancelotti didn't want him to go, and the players certainly missed him. John Terry wrote um, about. Wilkins in, in the program notes for that day but Wilkins had left and for the neutral this was quite a, an enjoyable result because I think generally speaking obviously you know sadly died not that long ago Ray Wilkins but he was a very popular figure uh, certainly I mean I, I think it's I think it's absolutely right to highlight the fact Wilkins going I think had an impact on the, the game because as we've seen so often you know we don't hear necessarily about number twos but I think they're they fulfil a very important role that we don't really uh, understand enough about. Clearly, there's the old Brian Tuff, Peter Taylor duo, and and you know, and that was one. That's the sort of the combinations always cited as having the how important it is the right hand man. But I think Sunderland will remember, you know, Martin O'Neill arriving, and the fact that John Robertson didn't come with him, and it was always held up when he arrived. I'll, I'll, Where's John Robertson? That they those two work so well together, and if you go back to Roy Keane at Sunderland, he 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 didn't he didn't bring in Brian Kidd in the end, and in the end, when he had a number two, who I think most people felt was very much a yes man to 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 Roy and a, and a mate of Roy's, rather than someone that could probably stand up to Roy, the outcomes might have been a lot different. I think you know Steve Bruce had a. Um, a good right-hand man, and they'd obviously worked together before, whose name now completely escapes me, but he was at Birmingham with him and um, he went to Southampton later on. But the point I'm making is that very often people don't realise quite how important some of the backroom staff are. And I think 
in this instance, this Chelsea Sunderland game, the departure of Ray Wilkins clearly was something that um, had an impact on that Chelsea squad. When you re- re- read the newspaper reports after the game, following you know that that result, Wilkins' name comes up, and understandably so because it was one of the factors that you know that led to possibly when Chelsea are looking for reasons for losing the game, for them losing it. Yeah, and I think it's not just yeah, any number two. It's the fact he's a former Chelsea player, mm. somebody who's hugely popular both with players and fans. I mean, he, you know, he a couple of years later he was regularly back in the press box, and he was one of those people who, I mean, I'm sure he had no idea who I was, but he was always very friendly and saying hello. Um, and it's, it, it, I mean, I don't think it was ever properly explained exactly what happened. There's sort of rumours had been some incident on a on an away trip that something had happened, um, but it, it all it all seemed very odd. And it was sort of one of those things that. Um, particularly in those days, it seemed to happen at Chelsea. There was always sort of intrigue. There was always stuff going on behind the scenes you didn't fully understand. And for the captain to be talking in the terms he did in his, in his programme notes about a departed coach, I think is, is quite odd and quite, quite revealing. It is, yeah. All right, chaps, let's have a quick break and then we will talk about the match itself. See you in a moment, everybody. Welcome back to The Greatest Games on the Blizzard. So, chaps, um, as you mapped out before, Nick, uh, a Sunderland win seemed very unlikely going into this game. I mean, Chelsea themselves, they'd start the season quite well. They got a couple of 6-0 victories in their first two games. They were, they'd been beaten 2-0 at Anfield, and I think they'd lost at Manchester City uh, before this one. And then they'd won 1-0 at home against Fulham in sort of fairly unconvincing fashion. And then, of course, as we said in the first half, it was all that business with Ray Wilkins and, and and a number of injuries you mentioned, Alex, John Terry, Lampard, Essien and so on. So Ferreira and Ivanovic were the sort of makeshift centre-backs. And Sunderland themselves, uh, Nick, had been down in London around that time. They got a, a, a sort of fairly decent point uh, against Tottenham Hotspur. But they one win in 24 away matches in the Premier League before this one. So again, just to add a, yet another layer onto the unlikeliness yeah, of yeah. this result. You, know, <laughs> you can't well, really... Th- it's funny because I've got that, that I've got my notes, my, my sort of matchbook from the day and the, the, the two teams. And, you know, I, Sunderland, it was Craig Gordon in goal. Mm. Then Neda Manua, who we'll, we'll talk about, had a part to play in this mm. this game on loan, obviously. He deserves his City. mention. Yeah. He does. <laughs> um, Phil Bardsley, the other fullback. Now, Bardo is ever dependable. Now, you'd have no worries about Phil Bardsley. But playing on the then, wrong side. Yeah, playing but playing on, the, on the wrong side on the left-hand side, yeah, rather than than right. Um, and then you've got Michael Turner and Titus Bramble. Now, um, you could call them the calamity twins to a certain extent, only because Bramble, you're always expecting at least one mistake in the game. And Turner on his day could be absolutely outstanding. Um, but then, you know, he, he could also, he could drop a clanger as well. In fairness to Michael Turner, I think he, he was perhaps misjudged because he did actually, he was quite a, stro- a, a, a solid centre-half. I think is where it sort of fell apart for Turner was he, he um, smashed his leg against a post against Everton at the Stadium of Light and, and never really recovered from that. But this was that, that was post this Chelsea game. But he was solid enough. I mean, you know, but you always had this worry about Bramble. Then Kieran Richardson came into midfield on the right-hand side. Jordan Henderson, as you know, Jonathan, you both mentioned already, young, upcoming, we know now big future ahead of him next to Lee Catamol and Bolo Zenden. Um, and then 
as Marjan and Danny Welbeck up front. Yeah, on paper, it, it's a good team. I, you know, you, you, you look at that Sunderland team and you know, that blend of youth and experience. But then when you looked at the Chelsea team, even with the changes, checking goal, um, then you had a back four, Basingua, uh, Ferreira, Ivanovic and Cole, a midfield of, midfield of Mikel, Ramirez, Zerkov, Maluda, and up front, Anelka and Drogba. And you, you look at it and think, well, that's men against boys in terms of experience, what they've won, you know, where they are, who they're playing at home. Um, uh, and, you, you know, you still, I, I still look at this Chelsea nil Sunderland 3 and I think, you know, did that really happen? <laughs> well, it wasn't the first time, of course, that Sunderland beat Chelsea by three goals, was it, Jonathan? You know, so, <laughs> you know, it just became another Premier League game. Well, yeah. Uh, yeah, three of my favourite days as a fan of Sunderland beating Chelsea by three goals. But I think this was probably the least expected of all of them. Um, yeah. But the but, manner of this one. I mean, was really the thing was, Sunderland actually were on top pretty much from the start. Hmm. Um, yeah, I think they end up having. Well, well there's a few. Well, according to my notes, that Chelsea, the first half an hour, had two, three yeah. chances, should we say. The last of them was the Drogba free kick, which was tipped over the bar. And then Sunderland's first chance, according to my notes, now this is loose, was 35th minute. Um, Welbeck had a header that. Um, hmm. Czech had to save at full stretch. That's a really good well, save for Czech. Yeah, it's an newer cross, isn't it? Yeah, and then two minutes later, again, Czech uh, had to spread his body to save from Danny Welbeck. So it swung. I think you know that Chelsea, yeah. you'd expect at home, had the, probably had the stronger opening, but it did swing towards Sunderland, and then of course Neda Manua pops up and fires them into the lead, and you know before half time, and 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 the least likely goal scorer, I suppose, in, in, in so many ways. But, I mean, but the whole that, goal is totally implausible because you know, what, I don't even know why he's where he is on the pitch. You know, well, he, he, and he, he dribbles he, through. It's, it, it, it's sort of, uh, he went on one of those um, mazy runs, you, you know, which you don't expect your defenders to make. Um, you know, Sunderland had a sort of, under Mick McCarthy, I suppose, had a, a few defenders who suddenly would burst out of defence and go on these erratic runs to the other end of the pitch and then not know what to do but, um, but it's the fact he a... picks the ball up centrally you know, he's, he doesn't cut in yeah. from the right he picks it up you know, 40 yards from goal it was, ni- it was, it was Nyron Nosworthy-ish <laughs> <laughs> yeah I don't know who you're being harsher to there but yeah <laughs> what I quite like about a goal is the fact that when Anua gets the ball you can see that it's, it's a classic defender finding himself in a position he probably shouldn't be in and he shapes to shoot with his weaker foot. He just for a moment thinks, oh, should I just lash at this? And then he thinks, well, no, I'll put it back onto my, my stronger foot. Let's let's see how we go. And then it's on one of the, 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 the some of the footage I was watching back, it was described as a slalom. Uh, and I think we, we, we would all agree mm. on that. Yeah. But, it, but it, it's actually awful defending because Mikel, I've, yeah. I've seen Mikel just sort of thinking, hang on, is that Nedim Anua? What's he doing? <laughs> and he sort of, sort of stands there as Anua goes past him. And then Basingwa puts in a really sort of half-hearted, weak effort. And by then, Anu has got a bit of momentum. And he goes yeah. past uh, Ivanovic. Ivanovic is the last one. The last player yeah. he meets, beats. And then really sort of calm finish as Czech comes out. And there's that glorious moment where the ball's gone past Czech. <laughs> and probably Anu is pretty much the only person on the pitch who's certain it's going in. Because yeah. uh, you know, he would have the angle. But you have that sort of beautiful fraction of a second of, 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 of tension. Of, Surely that hasn't... Oh, it has gone in! Mm. Yeah, but but, was, but 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 the worst of it is then you know as a Sunderland commentator and having watched so many 
false dawns. Um, at half time, I, I know the conversation with Gary Bennett would have been, this is fantastic. They're 1-0 up at Chelsea. But you know what's going to happen in the second <laughs> half, don't you? Hmm. But and I, mean, I think it was always a, fit of, a moment of you think, let's just enjoy the moment. But Nick, in your notes, did, did you have that the Ivanovic should have been sent off for a foul on Welbeck just before this? Um, that... I might have done, but I managed to stick my press pass over the... I see. Well, there, there was certainly... <laughs> I, I, I remember it. It was certainly in a lot of the match reports that uh, I was reading back that, that there were suggestions that, that Ivanovic could have gone. Um, but there's I'd have actually st- felt hard done by, actually, in hindsight, if, they, if he had gone. Yes. You know, it's all the sweeter 3-0 win with 11 cool. players still on the pitch. But that's that big team bias, Jonathan. You know, exactly, you know, yeah, yeah. That you spoke of. Um, but you're right. It, it was an interesting first half because in that the sort of second half of the first half, you know, Sunderland were on top. And then into the second half we only had to wait seven minutes with with Jan finishing off a fine move yeah Jordan Henderson putting the ball through and I, I think I, in one of the reports I read it said how they played without fear and I think um, it, which is interesting because the current Sunderland team which is a, actually a very young team one of the um, aspects of it is the fact that they seem to be playing without fear and I think that's cut I think that comes with you sometimes I think you know the, the younger players They've nothing to lose. They've got everything to prove and nothing to lose. And I think, you know, Jordan Henderson coming into a team, Ned Manure, I think at the time, was, only, was he 22? But he was certainly, you know, a young 20s um, and a confident player. I mean, he was, a, he, we know now because we hear him often on podcasts and the radio and so on. He's a, he's, a, he's a very intelligent guy. I mean, and he was always a pleasure to talk to. And he always had ambition at, um, you know, at Manchester City. And um, so... You know, you, you felt that players like that, you know, in that Steve Bruce team who was giving them their head at the time, you know, who's actually prepared to play them. I mean, you know, the Jordan Henderson story, you know, is is a fairy tale in so many ways. But I mean, bearing in mind what happened historically with Sunderland after Steve Bruce and managers were very, very reluctant to blood anybody from the academy, which led to, you know, you know a lot of frustration amongst Sunderland fans. Steve Bruce was prepared to do that. Um, and 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 Jordan Henderson, you know, as we know, has, has, has you know proved him right. And I think that was, you know, the, historically that game there is a lot going on. There's the Wilkins thing. There's the not the, the less than perfect start to the season, if you like, for Chelsea, mainly in their away games. Um, clearly, something wasn't right. I think when you look back at the season as a whole and where Chelsea finished and and the whole Chelsea story that season, clearly something wasn't quite right. But that doesn't take anything away from Sunderland on the afternoon, because whatever way you look at it, Stamford Bridge was not an easy place to go and play, and and you know it it it, it, it can be quite an intimidating stadium because you know the, the stands are very tall and they're very very close to the pitch, and the, and the, and you know the noise there is is you know it, it for a young player it probably can be quite intimidating. So all the more you know it, you know when you look back at that you know that team. Welbeck was, what was he, 19? 19 at the yeah, time? Yeah, he was 19. He was, yeah, that's right. Yeah. So, yeah, yeah, another young player, you know, who, who basically played without fear. Yeah, and yeah, nothing could be taken away from Sunderland because, you know, they, they were superb. And, and but that's, that, second, that second goal is, is a laughably good goal. It, it's, it's really yes. odd that the goal everybody remembers is your newer goal. But the second goal is actually in many ways a better goal because, it, you know, that's it's not contingent on bad defending. It's, uh, yeah, Zenden wins it, then Welbeck, plays it into space Henderson to run onto, then Henderson has the confidence and the the awareness to play the first time pass for Jan. He yeah, he finishes in the way that 
you know, top yeah, international yeah, forward yeah. should finish. Um, but is that, is that, um, is that moment as the ball is played to Henderson where your brain sort of does the thing of going, oh, well, a good player would just play it first time to Jan. And he actually does it. And you sort of, hang on, that's a kid playing with Sunderland doing that. That, that, that doesn't happen normally. Something, <laughs> something weird's happening here. Yeah. Do you, do you still miss Asamoah Jan, Jonathan? Because it was a shame he left Sunderland. <laughs> yeah, I do. I, I really liked Asamoah Jan. I, yeah. I've, I've spent a fair amount of time with him at Cups of Nations. And I actually mm. always had a very, um, very soft spot for him because of what happened in 2008. Mm-hmm. Um, so the Cup of Nations in Ghana, he started off um, as the centre forward. Uh, and, you know, he played at the World Cup in 2006. He was already a relatively established player. Yeah, yeah. And he, 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 I think he played Tanzania in the first game. And he had a had a shocker. Missed a couple of easy chances. And the, the Ghanaian might fans... Have been, might have been Guinea, uh, Jonathan. I, th- I think it was... Mm. I can't... Or maybe, maybe, yeah, maybe it was Guinea the first M- game and Tanzania Mantari the second scored. game. Mantari scored. Right. dug them out, didn't he? Yeah, yeah. Long yeah, range, yeah. yeah. That's right. But then the second game was Tanzania. Mm-hmm. So he, yeah, but he, he'd had a very bad start of that tournament those first two games missed a load yeah. of chances and um, he was scapegoated by the Ghanaian fans and they all mm-hmm. turned him and he, he walked out of the camp and his brother Bafo had to go and get him back and mm-hmm. he, he sort of was I'm never playing for Ghana again and had to be talked into it so um, Junior Agogo came in for Jan and scored and there was an extraordinary he suddenly became this great sort of sex symbol and there's all these pieces in the Ghanaian papers about <laughs> well on the one hand about how Manchester United and Arsenal were engaged in a bidding war for him I mean, they really weren't. He never yeah, played that, in the top flight in England. Ended, yeah. <laughs> but also about how the percentage of, of female fans had gone up because they all wanted to watch Junior Agogo. And when his name was read out before games, he heard this sort of high-pitched squealing, like the height of Beatlemania. And I remember, um, he, I think it, whoever they played in the third group game, he, he Morocco, scored. And he was, uh, I was with Ian Hawkey here, who's done this mm. podcast before. And we, we went into the, to the Ghana team hotel to try and grab him that night. And uh, sort of asked around, oh yeah, he's in the bar. We went in the bar. The bar's is full of women. And he's, he's at the back. And he's somehow got this sort of table kind of mm. protecting him in the corner from like, you know, dozens of women. And he sees us. And he must be delighted I, again, to see you. Take the heat off him a little bit, John. Well, yeah, I, I, <laughs> again, I, I, think, I, I suspect he had no idea who we were other than those are generic British journalists. But it makes me look good if I've got British journalist mates. So he sort of beckons us over. We seared him kind of like... <laughs> In this very bizarre situation. Um, but I, I always felt sorry for Jan after that because, yeah, Jan was clearly a better footballer than Junior mm. Agogo. Mm. Um, and then there's all, all that weirdness recently. I'm going to say recently, it's probably about five years oh. ago now with the, um, the jet ski accident and the, the, the DJ who died. And yes. There's all sorts of strange things seem to come out on Twitter about Asmoir Jan's life. Yeah. Back in Africa, he was. I mean, he was, I had to go up, and um, he was being interviewed for the World Service, and he was living in a, high, a rented house in Darras Hall in Pontyland in Newcastle. And for those who are uninitiated, it's the it's the street of footballers. Everybody affiliated to Newcastle and Sunderland seem to live in the same big road in Darras Hall. Anyway, that Asamoah had one of these huge houses in Darras Hall, and he invited me in, and he had a friend there, may well even have been his brother. So he was sort of living in this house. And apocryphally, I've been told, you know, he loves Guinness. Uh, well, this is ridiculous. This can't be true. And I arrive, and there's this huge fridge in the front room. And, of course, he opens the door, and it is. It's full of Guinness. <laughs> and he offers me a Guinness. And I said, no, I'm fine. But I, I thought, you know, it's true. Yeah. He does, but Gu- he but does, Guinness is, does Guinness like Guinness. is huge. <laughs> it's huge in West Africa. It's, um, 
they're, they're well, I, think they, I think they brew it in, I don't know, Nigeria or Ghana, one of the two. Oh. Um, I'm pretty sure that were, that, that Cup of Nations in 2008. Because you were there as well, weren't you, Marcus? I was, yeah. So do you remember you, you, when you came out of the airport mm. and you go, there's that roundabout on the, on the main road and there's yeah, a huge yeah. billboard mm-hmm. and there was a massive Guinness advert with Ghana players. And it'd be, it was massively controversial because some of the players were Muslim and obviously they oh, didn't yeah, didn't that, partake of it. Yeah, this rings a bell now, yeah. Um, yeah and yeah. it's I, I, I think it was all... I mean, maybe they'd stopped by then, but certainly when I first went to Africa, which would have been 2002 in Mali, um, they were still advertising Guinness as, a, as an aid to potency. <laughs> Blimey. So, yeah, uh, it's, it's funny what you find, though. I mean, I, I found it amusing going to Brazil and seeing Skull Lager. Uh, being touted about the place, remembering the Skull Cup in in, uh, in Scotland, of course, in the eighties. Uh, but back at it, though, chaps. You know, we we, we talked about <laughs> Jan's goal there after a little flight of fancy, which was very enjoyable. But but two nil up, and Sunderland were were having a lovely old time, and and Carlo Ancelotti's face looked like thunder, um, as you can imagine in the in the Chelsea bench. Because again, Nick, just to remind everybody, these were the first goals that his side had conceded at home. Mm. Um, yeah. in the league all season and and, and and since March. And and it was just so unexpected. But yet, for the rest of the match, Chelsea, as, as again, from my recollection and, and, and watching highlights back and, and reading match reports, Sunderland seemed pretty much in control. There was no I, real... I, I think they were. I don't think there was any, any danger of them yeah. uh, losing or even drawing the game. I think, it was, I think at that stage, I think Chelsea were shell-shocked. I think the manner of the third goal as well almost you know, it, it, yeah. metaphorically is an example of them falling apart mm. because Welbeck won't, wouldn't, wouldn't have scored or won't have scored many easier goals because Chelsea was just a shambles by that stage. I think they, they had just literally crumbled. Um, and I think a part of that was the fact that they were you know, about to lose at home um, and, and you know, this mired with everything that was... Presumably going on off the pitch as well. Um, it, it just didn't, you know. They, I don't think they could comprehend it, to be honest. No, I mean the the, the, the mistake from Cole, where he kind of obviously tries to pass it, back tries to, to the pass it back, yeah, and sort of squares it, and uh, and Welbeck tucks it in. I mean, if that was a ball from a winger, you'd say it was an excellent assist, Jonathan. <laughs> <wouldn't you? laughs> yeah, I mean, there's, there's, there's two things there. I mean, obviously, it's a terrible mistake from Cole and Kieran Richardson puts him under pressure, and, but also, where were the other Chelsea players? Yeah. So where are they? Like, I mean, it wasn't that Cole had an, had an easy pass that he, he didn't mm. make. He was waiting for somebody to kind of to offer themselves and nobody got there. So you know, his choice was belt the ball in the touch or try and knock it back to check. Mm-hmm. He tried to knock it back to check. And I, I think he was struggling really badly with his ankle at the time and whether that sort of hindered his attempt to play the back pass. But yeah, just knocks it into the box and there's Welbeck you know, in loads of room and... Uh, yeah, but, easiest I mean, job the, in the world the, um, to score. It was, but I mean, the footnote to it all is looking back. I looked at the the benches, and I almost sort of a double take because Sunderland. I mean, their their bench was Minilay, Malbronk, and then you get this sort of list of players who, when we look back now, people say, "How on earth did they ever make a living in England?" You know, they, they never signed South Americans again. Blah blah blah. It was. Marcus Angeleri, uh, Paolo da Silva, Christian Riveros, Ahmed El Mohamedi, and then Blair Adams. Yeah. That was the Sunderland bench. And, he, and in fairness, I mean, Patrick van Arnholt, who went on to play for Sunderland, was on the Chelsea bench, and they also had Josh McEachran, McEachran uh, on their bench. But they still had the likes, and they brought on Kalou 
McEachern and Kakuta. So they, they had a stronger bench. But I look back at that whole game. They win 3-0 and they've got a bench made up of, um, you know, the, the, the sort of three South Americans who didn't ever cover themselves in glory at, at Sunderland. Um, and Steve Bruce's excuse was they always take two seasons to settle. Um, and, and young Blair Adams, who, you know, went on to play sort of um, in the lower leagues, basically. For, to, for I mean, he had, he, also he would the following year play for England in the Under-20 World Cup. So he was sort of a, a respected young name, but he, he, he I'm not even sure he made a senior debut by this point, would he? I don't know. No, 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 I don't think he had. Yeah. But, I mean, um, you're, you're not really an established Premier League sort of mid-table side unless you do have a couple of jobbing South Americans on the bench. I, I, mean, I, I mean, Nick obviously saw them far more regularly than I did, but I, I always liked Paolo de Silva. I, I thought he... I he always liked him. He was, a, he was a character and every time he asked a bit him of pace, how but... he did, but every time he spoke to him, his, his, his stock phrase was, I'm happy. I'm happy. He was a lovely bloke, but um, Angularia, I think Riveros, what was his one goal was at West Ham, wasn't it? And final day of the season, the season. Final yeah. day of the season. Um... And Angolari was just. See, I'd, I'd seen him play in Argentina. I, I like the look of him in Argentina, which shows why I should never be a scout. <laughs> but it actually, to be fair, he, he he had a serious knee injury, hadn't he? Between yeah, he did. Yes, he had. And, he, and he never yeah. really recovered from that. So it was the yeah. knee. Yeah. It, Sutherland shouldn't have signed him after the injury. I think mm. the scouting initially was yes, this is a very talented fullback. But then you should have they should have given him sort of mm. six months a year to prove himself after the after the injury. Mm. And this this result, of course, is really exposed to all the problems that were going on at Chelsea, as, as you described earlier. Nick. That, you know, their lead—I mean, they were the league leaders again uh, going into this match. Then their their lead over Arsenal was reduced to just two points. And then they went on a, a winless run of, of five games after this loss uh, against Sunderland. They didn't really pick up their form until January, and they finished the season second. Which I mean, I. I suppose maybe in hindsight you'd say what well, actually wasn't a bad showing, all things considered. The quarterfinals of the Champions League, fourth round of the FA Cup, third round of the League Cup, and Manchester United put them out of the Champions League and uh, finished top of the season. So they were very much uh, sort of second best to to Fergie's boys. But I mean, and that was Ancelotti's last season, of course, Jonathan. As as Chelsea yeah, sacked Nicola at Goodison the final day, famously. Yeah, yeah. Um, yeah, yeah. But they, I mean, they finished the season really well. I think they 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 won, they won like five six games in a row in. Through the end of April, beginning of May, but the damage had been done, as you say. But I think they lost to Birmingham the week week after this game, yeah. and then yeah, that, that, yeah, this this game, then five more they, without a win, and that so it dropped them down to fourth, and it took them a long, long time to recover. Yeah, and if Sunderland hadn't have knocked their confidence, then maybe they could have done a, <laughs> a bit more. But Sunderland themselves, who finished tenth, top half finish on a technicality, as you said. Yeah, well, it, 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 yeah, it was because Newcastle <laughs> the Newcastle draw at home to West Brom or something, and Sunderland had beaten West Ham and. As I say, they leapt three places and finished tenth, and um, which is it, it, it's funny in hindsight because Steve Bruce will always say, "Well, look, you know, it's, at Sunderland we finished tenth, we finished tenth, we're a tenth place team," and actually everyone knew they weren't really. They were, they were actually thirteenth place team, and that was probably more their <laughs> genuinely more their level. But um, look, it was their first tenth finish in how many years, Jonathan? I mean, because well, since uh, Peter Reid, since, so, since, since Peter Reed, so um, and then uh, only had one, yeah, and the two seventh. Place finishes and, and so it's, it's, know, it's the only one of only three occasions they finished in the top half since relegation uh, in yeah. 1958. So there you are. Well, fair play to old Steve Bruce for that season. Uh, Jonathan, when we, we spoke about uh, Chelsea uh, being beaten 4 1 by Sunderland on a, on a previous Greatest Games podcast, there was a feeling with Sunderland fans that it, that it couldn't get any better than that. 
Is, is, this, is this game, surely this reached the highs and the feeling um, that one did? No, I don't think it quite did. Because that, that 4-1 was the first season up. You know, the stadium yeah. might have only been open for uh, what, two and a bit years at that point. There was a sense that the, that the sands were shifting and there wasn't such a sense that there was a, a, an unbreachable gulf to the to the very elite. So this, I, th- I mean, I, you know, other people may, may may feel differently. But my, my sense was that's a weird and freakish result. I don't quite understand what's going on, but we've got a really good front three, and maybe we could qualify for Europe this season. And then, yeah, very quickly that was dashed because two of the mm. two of those three disappeared within within what ten weeks. Yeah, um, I mean, it was so- it, it, it was an anomaly. I mean, it was it was a strange result. I mean, I think. Going back to those Peter Reid days, you, 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 I think there's an argument that fans could have gone to Stamford Bridge and half expected to get a result with the way that Sunderland were building and the way that they were they were playing and the, the finishes that Peter Reid was engineering and the, the feel-good factor that, that went with Reedy and Bobby Saxton, Niall Quinn, Kevin Phillips, everything conspired and the team that he built. The, this, this Steve Bruce team didn't have that sort of... Um, a, a, a sort of around it it didn't capture that and but you always felt it had talented players that you know had the ability on their day to do something special this though was so out of the blue and so sort of such an extraordinary result it it became it just stood alone in its own right if you like as one of those sort of like a it's like a team winning in an FA Cup and up at an FA Cup upset you you just didn't you didn't see it coming. You just didn't see it coming. But see, I, I think that was always the frustrating thing under Bruce was that every now and again they pull out a sensational performance. So the other game that I think it, yeah it must have been later this season, the three-one home win over Tottenham when Bent missed two penalties. Oh, and Zenden scored an absolute blinder. Yeah, and had a goal wrongly ruled out for offside. So that could could have been six-one, just by converting two penalties and not having a goal wrongly ruled out. <laughs> And, yeah. and Tottenham were lucky yeah. to get the one. It's Tottenham absolutely battered them that day. I think that's as well as, as I've ever seen Tottenham play. But that came in the middle of a run of awful form. There's just no no sense of consistency in it. Mm. That, that's what always got me. And as, as I say, I still feel that with Bruce sides now. I, I never work Newcastle out that I watch them one week and they're awful, and I watch them the next week and they're, they're, they're actually quite good. Yeah. That. Every now and then you get a Brucey bonus as well. <laughs> Gentlemen, uh, it's been a pleasure. Thank you very much, Nick, for coming on the podcast. Nice Thank to you. you uh, about Enjoyable. this game. For more stories like that, do check out theblizzard.co.uk. Jonathan and myself will be back next week with another great game from the history of football. Until then, have a good one. Bye.